0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The conversation about pop culture is often dominated by white male critics. And that means that black people, particularly black women, are relegated to stereotypes. But culture critic Zeba Blay says it's time to rewrite the script.
1: We're not saying do not have depictions or representations of strong black women, but also recognize that strength and weakness can exist in the same body
0: the author of Carefree Black Girls, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver?
0: Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Black artists shape so much of American popular culture, from music to television to filmmaking, but for too long, the people who write about it have been disproportionately white, male, and pretty much clueless about race. That means that a lot of the cultural discussion about everything from the rise of Cardi B to the legacy of The Cosby Show, the controversy of Dave Chappelle, has left out important context, black context. One person who's been working to get it right is Ziba Blay. She's a culture and film critic who has written for Jezebel, Essence, and the New York Times. Zeba Blay was one of the first to popularize the hashtag "Carefree Black Girls," and that helped inspire her new book, "Carefree Black Girls: A Celebration of Black Women in Popular Culture." And Ziba Blay joins us now. Welcome to a Word.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm I'm so delighted to be talking to you.
0: What was the sort of idea behind? carefree black girls? Like, where did that that hashtag come from? What was the impetus for it? And, and what were you all trying to say with that hashtag?
1: For me, the tweet that kind of started it all um, came from a place of me trying to make sense of my own sadness. There had been a Tumblr blog Back in the day, called carefree white girls, uh, that the writer Collier Meyerson My- had made, and it was, it was it was like pictures of Taylor Swift, you know, frolicking in a field and white girls in flower crowns, and and it, it was this like really interesting sort of highlight of how these these images of white women living their best lives are so ubiquitous, um, and yet. Images of black girls doing the same thing are not represented in the same way, are not even like uh, considered. Like, that isn't part of like the narrative of what black womanhood is. So, I think that's where that impetus for me came from was an answer to that concept. But then it became like a whole other thing, you know?
0: In your book, you talk about battles with depression, you talk about like, gaining weight, losing weight, and those sorts of struggles. And when I saw hashtags like, you know, carefree black girls or black boy joy, which is one that sort of came out a couple of years ago, I, you know, there was a part of me that was like, oh my gosh, this is good. Because again, it's images of carefree black kids and everything else like that. But it also sometimes can feel like pressure because when you don't feel that way, when you do feel weighed down by the world, when you are living under an administration with a president's like, basically, I hate Black people and it's open season on them, like, that can be a challenge in and of itself. How did you find this balance between what may have been your personal emotional struggles and this desire to be like, but no, we do have to celebrate. We got to publicly celebrate because so much of our joy is taken from us.
1: What the book was going to be and what it became are two, two very different things. And initially it was going to be a much more straightforward sort of analysis and appraisal of black women in pop culture with none of my experience baked into that. And then as I was writing, I was like, (laughs) I'm talking about how the complexities and the nuances of black women in pop culture should be centered in conversations about culture. And yet I'm afraid to center myself because I've been, you know, taught that, you know, that in order to be good, I have to be objective. And when really objective means, you know, white and male. So delving into that and like deciding to place myself into this sort of meditation on representation and what it means to be free really made me sort of create a new relationship and a new understanding of care freedom. Because for me, it's not about pretending that the pain doesn't exist, right? It's about acknowledging the fact that I have the capacity for joy as well as pain. I have, you know, and giving myself the permission to relish in in the moments when I'm feeling joyful and to also have compassion for myself in the moments when I'm not.
0: And, and I think about that. I, I like what you just said there about compassion when the moments that you are, because I always think about the, you know, carefree black girl, black boy joy, all these sorts of things are also put out sort of in contrast to this idea of the strong black woman, the strong black woman. If I'm understanding you correctly, it's more about this idea that like our entire lives don't have to be dedicated to whatever outsider struggle they want to impart upon us, that that we can sometimes just laugh that we can just have a damn good time that we can be we can be ratchet and respectful we can be profane and profound that's that's how i saw it does that sort of make sense
1: yeah and I, you know you just said you just mentioned this sort of the, the sort of strong black woman trope like i and i have a chapter in the book about about that sort of archetype for me it's like black women, there are strong black women. We're not saying do not have depictions or representations of strong black women, but also recognize that strength and weakness can exist in the same body, you know, the same as joy and pain can exist in the same body. And, and being able to recognize and name that nuance of experience is, I think, what's often lacking in conversations about about black images and so that was really something that I I really wanted to explore and like grapple with
0: we're gonna take a short break and we come back more on honoring black women in popular culture with Zeba Blay. This is the word with Jason Johnson stay tuned This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at aword@slate.com. Thank you You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about pop culture with writer Zeba Blay. Her new book is Carefree Black Girls, a celebration of black women and popular culture. You've weighed in on a controversy surrounding the new movie, The Harder They Fall on Netflix. Now look, this movie is great. And it's like a who's who of black actors. You got Regina King, Lakeith Stanfield, Idris Elba. But some people were really irritated about the casting of actress Zazie Beetz as stagecoach Mary. Here's a clip of her with her co-star jonathan majors
1: i made things i've built things and i ain't gonna risk all that just because you decided to come trotting back trotting yeah <laughs>
0: okay well
1: mm-hmm.
0: i guess i came to the room some because i ain't talking to the man i
1: thought i knew yeah things have changed
0: i see that You've written about what it means to have a woman like stagecoach Mary, who was a real person, who was a a plus size, dark skinned black woman being played by Zazie Beetz. Talk a little bit about why that is a problem above and beyond the historical inaccuracy of it, but why that is sort of a larger problem in black culture, both from a colorism and a sizism and even just sort of a, a sexuality presentation.
1: Here's the thing, right? People forget that like to critique something is not to hate it. It's not to be be out blindly outraged by it, right? Pointing out the history and the reality of this character that she's playing—it's a way to engage with the art. Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do when we watch movies? So there's that. But what I will say is that, you know, Zazie is a great actress, and she—you know—she she she's great in the movie. But there is a history and a context behind why she is in this movie. There is a history and a context be- behind why a darker-skinned, bigger, older—because *Stagecoach* Mary was, also, you know, at this point in history, an older woman—wasn't um, chosen for this role, and it's because Zazie is. Um, she conforms to the idea of like who's the right black lead, like, you know, black female lead, who's the right one. It's important that we make the distinction that the choice to cast her is a choice that, you know, because people were like, oh, like these white casting directors, black people are all up in this movie, like producing, directing, writing. Right. So so I think that's also pointing the, to the fact that the when we talk about who's in the room and who gets to make the decisions, we have to also like understand that There's a responsibility that we have, you know, to consider these things. All I can really say is that for me, it would be nice to see a dark-skinned big black woman be um, fought for and uh, loved and cherished and be sort of like, you know, the prize and the goal, not just because of representation and like, oh, seeing yourself on screen, but because it would be interesting and different.
0: So you talk also in your book about you're Ghanaian American and you talk about how you sort of in your home country, you know, you you see full page ads for bleaching cream and skin lighteners. And that stuff is very, very common for actors and actresses from the continent. I mean, goodness gracious, Nollywood is full of commercials and advertisements for, for skin lightening and everything else like that. For those who don't understand, because I think you're tapping into something that's really important here. Is the idea that lighter skin gives you greater power, that in a white supremacist system, being lighter is inherently better. It's not just something that manifests in Hollywood casting decisions and who's considered sexy and whose body can be presented. But it goes all the way back to the continent now and and not just in Ghana and not just in Nigeria, but there are whole commercials in Southeast Asia and India and and, and Pakistan and Malaysia about lightening your skin. Can you talk a little bit about, about how colorism is a global phenomenon and not just something that we see in film?
1: That's something that growing up, I didn't even realize. It wasn't until I was older that I understood the way colonialism has ravaged the entire world. I think that it's interesting because at the end of the day, color is all about hierarchy. You know, we talk about like the, the paperback test and like you know all these sorts of like arbitrary, made up you know um, distinctions. And it's interesting because I recently saw the mo- the movie Passing. You know, I haven't had to worry as much as you'd think. They were my aunts. You see, they took me in after father died and gave me a home of sorts. Very white very respectable very religious i met john not long after and as soon as i turned 18 and legal we got married and well went off and left for good it was so fascinating to me because watching that movie and looking at ruth nega who plays um the person who is passing for me, it's like I'm that's a black woman. That is the absurdity of color. And the fact that we black people have um, we, we've had to have this sort of nuanced understanding of futurism and colorism and white people don't. So for them, a light skinned person is just a light skinned person. To us, there, there's layers to it. And I say that because I was recently having a conversation with one of my friends who's South Asian and she said, like, there's that same sort of like phenomenon in her culture, right, where there's also th- this understanding of the distinctions between uh, th- this type of coloring and, and that type of coloring. And I don't know, I say, say it's just like it's interesting how so many uh, people of color, we all have this sort of shared um, experience in a way, even though it's in different contexts and white people, don't know anything about it. Like, that is what's so interesting to me.
0: We're going to take a short break. We come back more on honoring black women in popular culture with Zeba Blay. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about uplifting black women in popular culture with Zeba Blay. So, Zeba, this is something that has been on everybody's lips for weeks now. Um, Dave Chappelle. And you've written about Chappelle in his recent show on Netflix, The Closer, and his assistant, so he's in danger of being canceled for jokes about transgender people. You know, what are your thoughts on not just Chappelle as a media icon? Because that is, that's one track in this. But also this sort of thing about cancel culture, which began almost as a joke in sort of Black queer communities, and has now been co-opted by the right and right adjacent white people uh, and their Black tethers into <laughs> into something else entirely.
1: It's so annoying. Like it's the same thing that happened to to woke, right? Like it's funny when you when you said Dave Chappelle. I thought in my head, "Oh, brother," because I'm just like, it's just, it's um, it's exhausting, and and more than exhausting, it's boring. Like I'm 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 so bored by people, uh, and you know, and that's what I wrote about with with Chappelle. It's like you're doing the thing, you're doing the thing that as a comedian you do, which is like saying things that you know are going to cause a reaction, and then using that. Um, as a marker of your genius and your sort of like rebelliousness. And it's boring because then there's no because there's no substance to anything that you're saying. It's like you're still talking about this and like and and in the years since you've made those first transphobic jokes, like this is where you landed, it would just have been so much more interesting for him to actually engage with uh, with the criticism because I don't think in the closer that there's any real engagement with what actual trans people, uh, how actual trans people feel. It's more of this sort of like nebulous idea of the LGBTQ. And it's like something that's been really frustrating for me in in watching his comedy in respect to this, this, um, issue is that he seems to forget that there are like queer black people, you know? And I feel like, to go straight to I'm canceled. Clearly, you are not canceled. If anything, this is creating even more interest and and you know and engagement with your work. You got what you wanted, which is the uproar, and yet you don't actually want to consider or um, be in dialogue with the very people who are being affected by your work. And I, I find that boring.
0: So Ziba, you know, part of what I'm seeing here. With Chappelle, and this is, you know, as a pop culture critic, I'm curious at your thoughts on this. This is either a new era of his career, or it's a sign that he's going downhill. And and here's my sort of theory on this. Because like I said, one, at the end of the day, the closer wasn't funny. And and as I said, you know, your your goal ultimately is to be funny. And if you're not damn funny, I don't care what kind of larger political statement you're gonna make. But part of what I'm also seeing now is It reminds me of, you know, almost 25, 30 years ago when Michael Jackson did his black or white video and he ends the video with this crazy thing where he runs around and grabs his crotch and like beats up a car. Once you go into shock jock mode, isn't that also a sign that you're running out of material? Because if Chappelle's only shtick now is I'm pissing off the woke folk, that to me is a sign that you're you've the cupboard is bare of you as an entertainer.
1: I think that every artist goes through phases in their in their career, and he's in the phase where he is very famous and very rich, and therefore there, there's a disconnect between him and us already. Um, and so, his approach to comedy—I mean, it's not funny. Like the closure isn't funny, but it's 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 quite fascinating because you're seeing him have to reckon with what you're talking about, which is, oh, wow, like I am of a bygone era. <laughs> I'm a dinosaur anyway. And I don't say that in like a, in a mean way, just like in the reality of what the thing is. And it's actually really interesting to see what artists in th- that, this stage of their ca- career do with that. At the end of the day, the closer and that's how I feel about all like quote unquote problematic art. I don't think it should should not exist. Right. So, you know, I think it should exist. And I think that it is a tool that we can use a to have these kinds of conversations, which are part of like progressing the culture and b uh, they provide a snapshot of who we were in this time. Like, you know, when you people watch old episodes of 30 Rock and they're like, like that was kind of, you know, I like that because you get to be like we get to engage with the past and understand like where we are and where we're going. And so the only thing for me with him that is frustrating uh, is that he's in this place as an artist where he's not willing to change. And I think that is a sign of um, I want to say the word mediocrity, but that sounds that seems too intense. So I will say it's it's a sign of um, of stagnation.
0: I, I want to say this. I want to close with this. I Like I said, I was so excited. I love having this conversation with you. It reminds me so much of chatting with my friends. What does the world need to know? What does our audience need to know about what the challenges and successes are of being a black woman, a, a dark-skinned, plus-size, Ghanaian-American black woman in this space of cultural criticism? Because as you said— White guys get to critique everything from, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe films to James Bond to passing, and their identity is never called into question. But if you're a black woman with all those descriptors and you're talking about The Harder They Fall or you're talking about Lovecraft Country or you're talking about, you know, the latest Catherine Heigl whatever film, um, you know, there's people who always want to troll you and say, well, you're only looking at this from a perspective. What are some of the challenges with that? And so what are some of the trials that come from being one of the few Black women in this space?
1: So one of the challenges is definitely the riskiness of having an opinion as a Black woman. You know, um, I think that people, people don't like when Black women have opinions. We have opinions and suddenly we're being uh, aggressive Or we need to like have receipts on receipts to like prove our expertise and our understanding of what we're talking about. For me, just as someone who's written online for the last, you know, over a decade, being constantly, uh, you know, subject to harassment and, you know, long emails like, you know, (laughs) the the Dave Chappelle thing. I got like 20 emails from who I'm 100% sure were white men, just like. Going And I'm like, do you really think I'm going to sit here and read all of this? The entitlement, the entitlement that you have to my time and my energy when I said what I said is so, that can be really challenging because as I was coming up as a writer, I was constantly made to feel that, you know, if I'm writing about a film, I should not consider or bring any of who I am to my appraisal of that film, which to me is so absurd because we bring who we are to every piece of art that we experience you're sup- literally you're supposed to like that is literally the literally the point what you're really saying is you don't care about my experience and and where where i sit in the, in the culture so that's definitely a challenge but i will say you know when i first started out i felt like the only one but now there are so many amazing black women writing cultural criticism writing film criticism and I'm, I'm grateful that we, we exist and we're all existing at the same moment. I mean, my book came out a week after uh, uh, Cecily Bowen's book, Bad Fat Black Girl. And her book came out like a week after uh, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be by Nicole Perkins. And it's like, wow, like we all exist at the same time. We're in conversation with one another. That makes me really happy because I think a lot of times in media, there's this idea that there can only ever be one at a time. But it's like, actually, no, like we need a wider breadth of like opinions and Um, experiences, because as you said, with all of those descriptors, I have a very specific experience, Um, and I think that is the value, and that is what I bring every time I sit down to write, and I think it's important to honor that, you know.
0: Ziba Blake is a culture and film critic. Her book, Carefree Black Girls, is out now. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Ayana Angel and Jasmine Ellis. Asha Salusha is the managing producer of podcasts at Slate. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate june thomas is senior managing producer of the slate podcast network our theme music was produced by don will i'm jason johnson tune in next week for word
2: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper